Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Well, hello. How is re-entry into non-cop world? Quite intense, actually. Any political journalist that I saw there, they basically looked like somebody who'd sort of entered a world that they didn't know existed and they weren't quite sure whether they were glad it did exist and they weren't quite sure whether they were glad to be there. Do you know what I mean? They'd say things like, well, I've been at a European summit, but this is something else. And how are you coping with people wanting to talk about things other than 1.21 gigawatts? Uh, I'm not having it, really. I I know you love talking about those gigatons. I love, honestly, I like love talking about the gigatons. Actually, eventually, I'd go all about it so much. I mean, you know, sort of uh, Tom Clark at at Sky, he did a sort of totalizer and he actually sent me a picture of the totalizer it wasn't quite a gigaton totalizer it was a temperature totalizer but it was a totalizer and it was actually gordon brown who had originally said to me about six weeks ago you should do a totalizer about gigatons because i was talking to him about gigatons and then i've been like, trying to sell the gigatons totalizer idea to people i mean they kind of ended up saying the bbc ended up saying if it's that good an idea why don't you do it I mean, I am like the person at the party who people would be... Actually, it felt like the party on Saturday. It felt like the, everybody had left the party. They were taking the part the set and we were still there. It's like the people sitting on the stairs at the end of the party, you know what I mean? When it's like the hosts are like, okay, could you... Now, of course, there was then more dramatic things and I didn't stay fully for that ending. I don't know what happens at the end of a party. Do you never stay at the end of a party? No, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. Like, arrive early, leave early. Is that right? You know me, I don't want to be at party. My wife is like, would be very perfect for you then. I've often thought that about her. The funny thing is that, you know, we there were all these different places you could sit. But there was one particular place which was like a sort of, it was like an adjoining corridor between two bits of the complex. And you just sort of sit there. And it was quite nice because I'd meet, I'd have I'd basically people who keep stopping and talk to me. I'd be in the middle of a Zoom conversation. Eventually, I had to say to somebody, look, I'm in the middle of three different conversations. I can't really stop and talk to you now. So I'm making it sound like it's a sort of big jolly. I don't, it's not quite that, but you just meet interesting people who've got interesting things to say and people who can. Well, you make it sound very appealing and adjoining corridor in between two parts of a complex. <laughs> I know it's sort of. You sort of feel like it's not the aura of power, although there is the aura of power, not that I was in the power, but it is sort of the aura of you felt like even though you weren't in the, I wasn't in the decision making, that these are quite big decisions that are in play. How was your flight back? Uh Aha. 
the train the train was very good thank you very much was it did you have, have any good conversations i know you can't help yourself on public transport it was when i went to the loo on the way back i came out of the loo to be it's a very nice a woman from climate home news said would i like an interview a man wanted to talk to me about the circular economy and community wealth building and a chap wanted a selfie and you know i'm a sort of <laughs> i'm as you know i'm a glutton for sort of publicity and interaction um but you know as i came out of the toilet and i so i want to apologize to them all that maybe i wasn't my sort of normal chatty self i i think they perhaps all picked a slightly odd location to come and doorstep you do you think we all need a moment's contemplation between what happens behind that door and then coming back out into real life. We just need a, a second to take in what's happened in there. And You would not have liked it, would you? Oh, no, not absolutely not. Not after, a, not after a toilet trip. What I love about that story is that obviously word had got round you were in the toilet. And if people wanted a chance to get just their, their moment with you, a few seconds with you, then quick, stand outside. We don't know how long he's going to be in there. I feel bad about this now because everyone was very sort of you know nice and um you, you have no worry about any noises they might have heard out there in the corridor in the vestibule i didn't know i wasn't sort of conscious of that as they were in the ve- i didn't know they were in the vestibule when i was in the toilet do you see what mm. i mean but we all know that you like sh- shouting out in the shower i don't know what goes on Runs- in the lavatory Runciman. i was not shouting Runciman. <laughs> so who, who did you i know you had your microphone with you presumably you weren't going um waiting outside lavatories for people but who who did you manage to find for us this week well, I was on the Today programme on Friday morning and I spoke to an incredibly inspiring young Kenyan activist, uh, Elizabeth Watuti. Um, and I, so we'll first we'll be hearing from her. Then I caught up with Pete Betts, uh, he of last week's episode, because he gives a, you know, he's got these many hats, but he gives a very good, quite objective take on where Glasgow got to. I genuinely thought that conversation you had with him last week was the most illuminating conversation about COP. And I felt like I had a much better sense of what was happening, what the uh, sort of underlying tensions and conversations and just the, you know, the whole chess game of it. I felt I had a much better understanding listening to Pete talk on last week's podcast. than Yeah, I had somebody actually else said to me that it was really good. So then I talked to Pete and then Fahana Yamin, who friend of the pod who you know works with many of the vulnerable countries and we'll get her take what's your reason to be cheerful well are you aware of the uh, the tipping point the tv quiz show i am aware of it i mean i don't i've never watched it but i am um, i'm not a regular viewer of this it's a quiz show based on you know that game if you go to a, a, a an arcade on a pier they have a load of two peas going back and forwards on a moving shelf oh yeah you have to kind of knock them off i really like that game well, maybe you'd love this quiz show, and, and with good reason, um, because somebody sent me a screen grab, and one of the questions was, which former Labour Party leader presents the Reasons to be Cheerful podcast alongside Jeff Lloyd? I mean, that's really good, isn't it? We were a question on the tipping point. And did they, did they get it right, you know? I believe they said Neil Kinnock. <laughs> you are joking. <laughs> It was it was Alex Vice Bryce who used to work on the podcast who sent it to me. I mean, I mean, you slightly sort of, you know, the Jeff Lloyd giveth and the Jeff Lloyd taketh <laughs> away. I mean, okay, that's sort of a reason for you to be cheerful and me to be. Sort of... <laughs> Neil Kinnock's a friend of mine, so it's not against Neil Kinnock. It's just more like just a shame 
we didn't haven't quite achieved the notoriety we might have hoped. I think it shows there is still room for growth and an audience that hasn't yet found this podcast. I, I felt uh, it was you would a, be very good in Hollywood as a stuntman. I, I've always thought as a stuntman, you mean more as a kind of an agent, a soft soaper. No, no, but I think you'd be good at sort of saying, you know, everything's great. Da 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 da. Room for growth. It's, uh, that is a that is a definitely a good way of putting it. What's uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? I don't know. I'm in sort of two minds. I think my reason to be cheerful, and we'll get to this later, is that you know this summit was a mixed bag, is the fairest way of putting it. Um, but I think there's something different compared to previous summits, which is that the the voice of young people. And activism is incredibly strong, I think. The movement we have seen is because of people sort of really pushing for that change. And I think that is a really important thing to hold on to, not just because it makes you feel more cheerful, but because I think it is the thing that drives change. And what was your second possible reason to be cheerful? My second reason to be cheerful is your podcast. Oh, Ed. Ed, that's so kind. Because I we watched Justine and I in between Glasgow watched two bits of the first episode of Succession and got to the end. And so I then felt able to listen to your podcast, which I thought was excellent. Thank and you. You're gonna give me the name because I sort of garble the name. It's called But why don't you tell me what you think it's called? Because I always enjoy your attempts at it. Hardcore and numbskull <laughs> or something. Called Firecrotch and Normcore. Yeah, okay, so I sort of slightly garbled it. Uh, anyway, Succession is illuminating, but you you know, what was amazing was that you managed to find so many different angles that completely passed me by. I don't think I have ever watched a TV show, not even something like The Sopranos, and had such a compulsion to psychoanalyse the characters. It's it's really good and everyone should listen to it. Thank you. And how are you coping? There's quite a lot of fruity language in it. You, I found that quite difficult to take. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So I'm here in Glasgow with Elizabeth Wathuti, who is the founder of Green Generation and a young Kenyan activist. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start off away from Glasgow, if I can, because I think it'll be important for our listeners. How did you first get involved in this issue of the climate crisis? I have strongly been connected with the natural world as someone who grew up in the woods and in the most forested region in Kenya. And so I have grown up knowing that I need nature for my survival and for everyone's survival. And at some point, I also faced ecological grief when I realized that actually we are a part of nature and we, the human race, are actually nature. So the strong reason why people are disturbed is because they are strongly connected with the natural world. And along the way, I fully got into activism and environmental conservation because I realized that the problems were beyond my community, beyond my country, that it was also about what was happening around the world that was affecting people around me, that women could not find water and food for their families. And tell us a little bit about what do you see in Kenya as a result of the climate crisis? It has been a difficult time for me seeing first-hand impacts of the climate crisis in my country. And I give really practical examples of times when I have 
encountered women who've had to walk even 12 miles to look for food and water for their families. And seeing a woman with her three children, they're on the side of a dried up riverbed, they're crying, and they have to walk home after trying to look for water. Seeing lots of people who've lost their lives and their livelihoods as a result of the extreme weather patterns that end up causing mudslides, landslides, and even floodings. And to a bigger extent, children are also not able to access their schools. We had a, a period when so many schools had been submerged in water due to the heavy floods. So it's a situation that is affecting so many people, but mostly the women and the children are the ones that are on the front lines of this crisis. And they are also the ones that are trying to work on the solutions on the ground, because I work a lot with school children as well. I mean, it's incredibly moving to, to hear you say this. You see this in Kenya and you come to Glasgow and you have your own reality at home. What, what, what does the reality or unreality of Glasgow feel like? I mean, one of the things that I discovered in Glasgow is the fact that people here are able to easily predict how the weather is going to be in the next day or two. But from where I'm coming from, it has become so unpredictable. I want the farmers back in my country to be able to predict when to plant and to harvest because right now we have a massive crop failure that is costing the food security in the country. But again, if we look at what's happening in the global south, most of the food that we consume is food produced through agriculture by women. But it's also a bigger percentage is brought in countries in the north. So if our crops continue to fail in the next years, the supermarkets, the shelves might run empty. So I think it's important that people look at the connection of the issues of the impacts that happen in other countries and how they might end up impacting the rest of the world because it's a chain that, you know, the more loss and damage that we continue to suffer in our countries, it might in some point also continue to impact countries in the north. And we're speaking on the Friday of the COP. We don't know when it's going to end. How do you feel about what has happened here? It's supposed to be the last day of the COP. And honestly, as a young person, I feel lied to because we have had so many broken promises so far. But what we're seeing the leaders putting forward is more commitments, you know, more pledges, more reasons to keep us thinking that they're making progress when at the end of the day, I feel it's more broken promises because even what they're putting forward is not enough to keep 1.5 alive. Countries don't want to face out fossil fuels. So how can we continue to say that we are going to keep 1.5 alive when emissions keep rising every other day? And how can we continue to say that we care about the fate of humanity when we have not put the people whose lives and livelihoods are in balance at the centre of the decisions that are being made at COP26? Lots of people who listen to this will have heard about this $100 billion of finance, which was promised in 2009 for a vulnerable and developing countries. I mean, presumably you feel that this is a matter of trust and it is a terrible sign of the lack of trust there can be for developing countries that this still hasn't been delivered? Yeah, it's the same question. How can they continue to lie to us about the 100 billion when what they promised has not yet been delivered? So how are we supposed to now believe that it's going to be delivered by 2023? 
you know, the promises and the empty words are not going to help us solve this crisis. It's about what are the countries doing right now. Don't just commit. It's about immediate action. And immediate action is not saying we will. It's about this is what we are doing. And finally, then, you are still fighting for what you believe in. Yeah. You know, it's important for us to be to tell the truth, I think, uh, at the end of this COP uh, and about the climate crisis. But it's also important that we don't give up hope. Yeah. What keeps you hopeful? So I would rather not say what keeps me hopeful, but what keeps me going. Because for me, hope is meaningless if it's not followed by action. What keeps me going is knowing that I'm not in this fight alone. I have seen hundreds of thousands of people here in Glasgow alone who've been out on the streets, out of the blue zone. They want immediate action and they do not want to sit back and watch the planet become uninhabitable. And I also work with so many young people and children back at home. They are doing the best that they can to green their schools, to green their countries to use their voices to demand for action. And this to me is where the real change is going to come from. And the fact that I am doing this because I love nature, I love the planet, I love my people. And that's the deep-rooted passion and focus that keeps me going every day. Because if I do this because the leaders are not doing it, then there's a tendency to give up in the way. But that's not the reason why I am in this fight. It's because of the love for people and nature. And I hope everyone can do it because they love people and the planet and they want to do everything it takes to put people and the planet above profits. Well, look, I'm sure I speak for our listeners when saying listening to you keeps us all going. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Right. Well, we are at the end of the Glasgow summit. There is a Glasgow Climate Action Pact. And I thought, who better to give us the bird's eye view than Pete Betts. Give us your just top line verdict. So I, I think that the the UK did a, a really good job to organise a successful COP in a time of COVID. It's it's a you know much better spirit than almost any COP I've been in. That it does matter. And I also thought that you know they got a set of technical decisions which were you know not easy to land and and very helpful and. Uh, with implementation of of the climate process and also you know a good package of finance on adaptation in particular for developing countries but on the overall sort of task of reducing emissions which was you know the number one objective for this cop was the, this first of these five yearly cycles where countries are meant to raise their ambition you know we did make progress but you know not nearly enough so we're now according to climate tracker heading for something like 2.4 degrees rather than the 2.7 we were heading for before. I mean, that's a sort of characteristically clear explanation of this. Take us through this, which is, I want to come on to sort of where do we go from here, but there's kind of another level of detail down. Take us through the sort of ledger, because there's quite a lot of moving parts, you know, language on coal, side agreements, net zero. Time. So what's on the sort of positive side of the ledger and what's on the kind of more negative, problematic side of the ledger? On on the positive side of the ledger, maybe, first of all, there was the negotiated package where um, there's a decision setting out rules on the carbon market, uh, rules on transparency, which are really important so that countries know what each other are doing. Um, a, a decision which says that NDCs 
have to be set every five years. These are the nationally determined contributions, yeah. Every five years rather than leaving open the door for 10 years. Um, There's a commitment, it's only a commitment, they have to be met, but there is a commitment by developed countries to double adaptation funding uh, and to work out how you, you know, work out how to operationalize the adaptation goal sounds a bit techie but it's really important to work out how you actually do adaptation important to developing countries there was some very modest progress on loss and damage which you know i think islands and others would have liked more but i think we and and loss and damage is basically the impact on in particular poorer countries of the climate crisis not adapting and it's not trying to reduce your emissions it's actually just the who's going to pay for the costs of the damage that's done basically yeah it's sort of the damage that to which you cannot adapt is the way i like to think of it yeah um, it tends to get um very toxified by linkages with sort of compensation and reparations which is a, a red line for many developed countries and i think if we can avoid calling it reparations i think there's more chance of getting some solid progress on it anyway we did make a start on that and also language in the COP decision calling for a phase down in the end of of, um, of coal uh, and phasing out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, which is the first time we've got a reference to those things in COP decisions. So that's definitely um, a step forward. On the finance side, developed countries did not, unfortunately, deliver on the 100 billion in gold that they have uh, in 2020. But, you know, they are on track to meet that goal in either next year or certainly in 2023, which is at least progress, albeit not as fast as should have been done. And then on the question of ambition. So I'll come to the the country targets, these 2030 targets, the NDCs. I'll come to those last. But there were two other big blocks that where we did make progress. We've now got most of the world's economy, I think it's about 90%, covered by net zero mid-century goals, which is a step forward. And the UK also organised, used its, its, its convening power as COP presidency to bring together some coalitions of countries and non-state actors working together to, for example, halt deforestation. There was a big pledge on deforestation. There was another coalition on coal, uh, another one on, on uh, phasing out internal combustion engines, another one on methane. And, you know, these these coalitions, you know, are often difficult to ensure they really deliver. But, you know, if they can deliver, they they could be powerful. And there is there is some substance in some of them, which gives some chance that they, they will be delivered. And then finally, just on, on the nationally determined contributions, these country emissions plans for 2030, which was, you know, the key focus of, of the, coming into the COP, it, it's a mixed picture. So we got much more ambition from most of the big developed countries, except Australia. You know, most of them agreeing to, to pretty well halve their emissions or, or better than that. Uh, and also some big emerging economies moved. So South Africa and India, actually, at the start of the COP, countries like Colombia and Argentina, and also a number of vulnerable countries. But on the other side of the ledger, we had some really big emitters who didn't really move. So we had China, by far the world's biggest emitter, um, bigger than the whole of the developed world, making very some just some modest tweaks to their target, their NDC. Uh, Russia, the same. 
Um, then we had Indonesia not moving. We had Brazil and Mexico actively weakening their target. So that's why we're only on course for 2.4 degrees. If we'd had significantly more ambition from those other countries, we would have been doing a bit better. Now, just before we get into sort of what happens next, can I just ask you something which has also been rattling around in my head? We, we always talk about China, and I totally understand the reasons for that. And you emphasise to me a lot, look, we need China to move. China is the world's biggest emitter. And that is definitely true. I just happened to be looking at some figures the other day, looking at per capita emissions. So that's emissions per head. And I think I'm right in saying that America and indeed Canada are double that of China. I think we're we're now below China. I mean, just uh, this is not to say China shouldn't move, but just just how do you think about this this issue? Because because we always say China's the biggest emitter, twenty eight percent of emissions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that is definitely true, but but. The U.S. is also a bit of an issue as well, isn't it? The, the U.S. is definitely an issue. And, um, and one of the things that the Chinese say in this, some justification in this, is that, you know, the U.S. have now set ambitious targets, but they won't meet them. And, you know, it's t- true that the U.S., Japan, Canada have a, a long history of setting targets which they haven't met. So, you know, that is a very fair point. And it's also a very fair point that... that um, US, Canada, and Australia's emissions per head are much higher. China makes that point, and it also, you know, quite legitimately, as does India, makes the point about historic emissions. It's true that, you know, we, the developed world, got rich and grew by using coal. My response to that is that's true, and we really do need all the developed world to, to do much, much more. But another way of looking at this is you know, actually, if you're developing your economy, your marginal costs of reducing emissions are actually much lower than in the developed world, basically because your infrastructure isn't built yet. And, you know, the difference between us and them is that when we were growing, we didn't have access to, you know, absolutely plentiful, very cheap renewable energy. So it's very clear to me that China and India are not going to restrict their development, and nor should they. And if we try to ask them, they'll they'll rightly ignore us. What we need to do is develop, and many people in China and India are looking at this, is looking at how, how those countries can adopt a different development path, a better one than we did, benefiting from the fact that renewable energy is now cheaper than coal near, nearly everywhere in the world, that electric cars uh, will soon be cheaper, even on a purchase price, than internal combustion engines. So we have got to give support. And I'm the first one to say we need to give much more support to developing countries. But making it solely a conversation about about support is misleading. These countries are going to be spending trillions, in any case, developing their economy. The the question is, can we nudge those trillions to be spent in a greener direction, and one would also be better for their growth and the health of their own populations. And and so then that takes me to the sort of what happens next. So we've we the UK is a president, a uh, uh, COP president. Alex Sharma is the COP president for another year, essentially a bit less than a year until COP twenty seven in Egypt. Sharm El Sheikh. So leave aside sort of just what Britain does, but 
what is it if you know if you were uh let's say we made you the sort of some combination of the un secretary general and the u.s president just for the very good idea the 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 petocracy for the the betsocracy either one you could whichever you prefer um for the purposes of this conversation what do we need to do i mean maybe we should do both what do we need to do as a world and what can britain do take your pick of those you could do both to to do in sharm el sheikh what we didn't do in glasgow first of all i i don't think that those countries who didn't really raise their ambition felt under much pressure in, in Glasgow. Um, there's so much criticism of the blah, blah in Glasgow. I mean, the reason we don't negotiate targets in Glasgow is because the big emerging economies refuse that notion. You know, I, when I was lead negotiator for the EU, we wanted uh, a negotiation about targets, but we lost that argument in Warsaw, at the COP in Warsaw in 2013. So basically, this this is because then the Paris construct was we can agree a sort of top down goal, uh, you know, efforts to keep global warming well below two degrees and, and make efforts to one point five. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it's voluntary. What what targets countries set basically? Yes, um, it's more than voluntary. I would say it's a you know what the EU ideally would have liked, and many vulnerable countries would have liked, is some kind of process at UN level to identify what would be an adequate and fair contribution from each country uh, that would come around, you know, in advance of countries setting their commitments and which countries would have regard to. And then we wanted some kind of negotiation on those targets. And the emerging economies, with some support from the US, were emphatic that that wasn't going to happen. And that's where we got this notion of nationally determined contributions it was going to be national determined commitments but it came became even worse national determined contributions each country's targets would be set by that country in capitals before the cop and that there would be no negotiation about that so the system relies entirely on peer pressure on naming and shaming on, on public opinion particularly for those countries without active civil societies we need to build global public expectation of what each country does. And I feel that um, China in particular felt very little pressure uh, coming into this COP for having set, essentially, for not for set an NDC, which essentially reflects what its economy will probably do anyway. And this isn't a question of picking on China or you know, this is this is purely a function of of, of China's scale. There, there is a active debate in China between those who want China to do more and those who don't. People in China who, you know, care about impacts of climate on China, who want China to dominate the new low carbon industries, who care about China's international reputation, want China to do more. Others say, well, no, we need to protect our energy security. You know, we need to keep all of our options open for growth and so on. So somehow we need to influence that debate. And that means, I would say, first of all, we need to persuade civil society who is not comfortable calling out, you know, inverted commas, developing countries. We need to persuade them that that is the right thing to do. Secondly, the the developed world needs to do a much better job at mobilising 
serious public finance so that it, it can't find itself in the dock. Which is what happened here, which is that we, because we didn't deliver on this blasted 100 billion that you and I helped sort of promise in 2009, still not delivered till 2023 on the current projections. Exactly right. I think that was a, a real disappointment that, that the developed world did not meet the target on time. And I, I think there's another issue which is increasingly looming large, which is loss and damage, you know, where, you know, the developed world has been in a bit of denial for some time. I mean, I do think the whole issue of liability and reparations is is a, is a red line and will remain a red line. But I think thinking of loss and damage in terms of solidarity and helping countries suffering the impacts of climate change, particularly those to which it can't adapt, is the right thing to do. If I were President of the United States, uh, I, I would try and persuade, well, I would instruct my system to grip this issue, shape this issue in such a way that we can make a serious difference to help these countries, but without falling into the um, sort of red line of, of, of formal legal liability or compensation. Um, trade policy, we're doing a trade deal with Australia. Australia has a four-degree target. I think I'm right in saying four-degree compatible target for 2030. They do have net zero for 2050, but it seems rather flimsy. I mean, how much can trade policy now start to have an impact? Because one of the things that I feel is we can't keep treating climate as sort of in a box somewhere off elsewhere. It's got to get to the heart of policymaking elsewhere in the system. Yeah, I, I do think trade policy is going to have to enter into the conversation, including with Australia. Of course, the UK, you know, may, arguably doesn't have the clout to, to use that effectively with the likes of China. Even the EU is, is starting this conversation about so-called carbon border adjustment mechanisms. Just explain for our listeners what that is. Essentially carbon tariffs. So if the EU imported goods from China, which carbon had been emitted in their production, they would pay a tariff reflecting the the carbon uh, emitted during the production of those goods. I think that is coming, but the EU is moving extremely cautiously because it, it doesn't want to provoke a trade war. But I think it is moving. Whether that would be enough to shift the whole of China, because most Chinese emissions are not related to Chinese exports, they're related to Chinese domestic markets and warming and moving around and providing the goods, the Chinese population. But I think it would be a way to start uh, a, a much more serious conversation with China. I think they would have impact on some sectors where their exports and where carbon is a high, high share of the costs. How much is it the impact they would have on something like cars, for example, or electronic goods where the carbon is probably a very low portion of the um, of the of the of the purchase price. I don't know, but it would be a it would be a powerful signal. Ideally, you would do this in partnership with China. You would agree shared objectives, and you would try and agree, you know, an approach to setting prices together for for carbon and you know regulating together, so that you didn't need to have these these tariffs. I mean, what are the other tools at our disposal, Pete? What will influence the really big emitters? I mean, we talked a lot about China. So I do think China cares about its reputation, particularly in the developing world. So, you know, providing support for the developing world and, you know, enabling them to express their views 
to China. Often China is often their biggest trading partner, their biggest creditor, and they're often reluctant to call them out. But we did see a bit of that over the last couple of weeks. So that's one tool. We've talked about access to markets. And another tool um, which might be you know, useful in the forest space is the biggest driver of deforestation is production of agricultural commodities, soy, palm oil, cocoa, beef. Um, if if we could move to a world where we were only sourcing our commodities from deforestation-free sources, that would be a powerful tool to deploy with the likes of, of Brazil and Indonesia and others. Again, ideally, you would do this in partnership. And, and that is something the UK start, started um, in the run-up to the COP as part of the deforestation announcements uh, in the first week. There's a, there is such a there is a dialogue uh, between producer and consumer countries, also involving the supply chain, the big traders, to try and move to a world where we do source these products from deforestation-free sources. Let, let me ask you what I can only call the Jim from Motherwell question. <laughs> so uh, I was on the train station on Saturday and I met Jim from Motherwell and I've quoted him a number of times. And I, he asked me how the COP was going and I said not sure this was obviously with a week or so gone by a few days gone by uh and i said well what do you think about it and he said cop 26 clues in the name they've tried 25 times before (laughs) Uh, uh, um now you know for all the millions of words that i've spilled about the cop i thought jim sort of rather hit the nail on the head you know (laughs) rather more succinctly than i did now of course, you know, Jim's right and he's wrong. I mean, he's right that we've not solved the problem. He's He'd be wrong to think we haven't made massive progress since COP1. But let me ask you this sort of slightly difficult question. Does some part of you feel, look, if we carry on doing more of what we've been doing, one more heave, it's not going to get us there in COP27. I mean, let's be honest with each other. It's unlikely that all these countries are going to come back with massively, massively different targets at COP27. I mean, maybe we need, you know, we want to push as hard as we can, but, you know, we're only 20, 25% of the way there in terms of halving emissions this decade. I'm absolutely not questioning the COP process, but I'm more wondering should we be thinking more outside the box, whatever that means in this context? It's the right question because, you know, I, I you know, when, like you know Greta Thunberg for example says blah 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 you know my response tends to be you know she's got a point um it's not delivering fast enough but it's still the least bad option and the real problem is lack of political will that's my yeah line let's see this for starters we can complement the 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 framework convention and the Paris Agreement with other tools and levers so you know I do think there is massive movement in the private sector, getting coalitions to commit to things like phasing out internal combustion engines. There's clearly more to be done to develop rigour in in some of the net zero commitments. And I think a lot of businesses want that rigour and it isn't clear yet who's doing that. So the um, Secretary General announced a process to try and develop some of the rules to ensure that these net zero targets are more rigorous. I think embedding um, climate in financial and investment decision making is another area, and you know we saw we saw GFANS. I've forgotten what the uh, initialism actually right. stands for, but it's a big coalition of finance companies yeah. uh, pledging to get to net zero. 
Yeah, some of which is greenwash and some of which is real. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's that's a, probably a fair summary. But you know, I think that it is real for many of them, and it is going to start driving financial decision making. It's going to make capital more expensive for brown industries. I think we're also seeing the start of uh, climate being embedded in the international financial system. You know, in in the way that banks and so on calculate risk, the way that the IMF calculates countries' sovereign risk exposure, which feature in their credit ratings and so on. So I think those are all other important levers. Another one is sort of trying to drive technologies. I mean, the the the, way, the reason that that renewable energy is cheaper than um, fossil fuels in most of the world is not an accident. It's because, you know, in Europe, um, massive public investments were made to bring down the cost, you know, to invest in renewable energy at scale, which brought down the costs. And then, to be fair, China also produced a huge amount, which further brought down the costs. So, you know, public investment in key technologies, you know, de facto technology sharing is also a really important, you know, way of addressing the problem. And all these things are happening, but even together, although they're all having an impact, and I do think the direction of travel is now irreversible, accelerating and, you know, inevitable, it's just not fast enough. So we've got to keep looking for ways of making it go faster and indeed much faster. Okay, a last question, Pete. Uh, you've been very good to spend time with us. Give us a sort of reason for hope. So I do, I do think the more we go, the more it kind of snowballs. And I think we will have further, you know, technological breakthroughs like we've seen with uh, renewable energy and electric vehicles. But it does tend to need public policy behind it. You know, you sometimes get these voices saying we just need the private sector will get on with it. The public sector just need to get out of the way now. That's just wrong. You, you, you need everybody. You need the whole of society to, to, to move this thing fast enough so you know we do need much more active policy uh to make it happen and it is <laughs> but it but it isn't happening fast enough <laughs> truth is important in this uh, well look pete you've been heroic as always at this cop how many cops is that now for you uh, oh, I can't, uh probably 15 or something i don't know you know I, I, I don't want to meet jim from motherwell because he'd probably tell me something about my personal <laughs> effectiveness as well as of the he, if, he's, if he's listening uh maybe you can email in <laughs> pete betts uh thank you so much for joining us thanks very much ed great to see you ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. To talk further about the outcome of the COP, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by a friend of the pod, Fahana Yamin, who was working with Indigenous people and others at the COP Vulnerable States. Fahana, thank you so much for joining us. Give us your top line impressions of the outcome. Um, disappointed. I think we could have made it a little bit better. The Indigenous delegations were the second largest delegations actually at this COP after the fossil fuel industry, which you know is 500 people. A huge number of Indigenous people around the world came because their lands, their biodiversity, their forests are being depleted. They are resisting big oil uh, and extractive industries. So they had a lot at stake and I was working with them to sort of join them up with the inside delegations with the vulnerable countries because they had a very uh, similar agenda in trying to ensure climate justice here. You said it could have been better and you're disappointed. What would you say a little bit more? You know, we were just told the NDCs, they add up to 2.4 degrees. So if they're not ratcheted up year on year, that is a death sentence for all of these communities, all of the ecosystems that they're safeguarding. We were told that loss and damage would receive priority. We were given assurances that the UK presidency was prioritising it. And then in the end, those provisions were gutted from the third draft to the final draft, basically, the, the second draft to the final draft. And just explain, Fahana, because this is obviously quite lost in the fog of the ending of the COP, because people talked a lot about the coal language. But, but just say on this loss and damage, what changed and why it's significant? Well, the whole of the developing world, that's, you know, the majority of the world's population asked for climate justice, asked for loss and damage funding, which is basically support for now adapting beyond the impacts that cannot be avoided. So where there's displacements, the crops cannot be grown, there's livelihoods that have been uh, uh, going for centuries that are no longer possible. All of these impacts are really happening in the real world. And there is recognition of that now in the Paris Agreement and in the Glasgow Pact, but there's no real provision to provide that. So what the developing world had asked for as a united bloc was a Glasgow facility to be established. And now that's been reduced to a dialogue about maybe a potential facility. So we've been having discussions about this issue for now almost 30 years, Ed, so quite disappointed and those groups are really disappointed and the reason is really that they want a recognition of the enormity of harm that's already happening um, to their fragile lands to their ecosystems to precarious livelihoods agriculture all of these are being immensely impacted already and not recognizing it is another way in which polluters are getting off lightly essentially not Absorbing the cost of the damages is allowing business as usual to proceed as if nothing is happening. And if it's not a naive question, Farna, who is blocking this? I think actually there's a, the biggest blockers are the USA. And that's what was disappointed that even under a Biden administration, which is essentially doing a climate justice based approach domestically, where they recognize that the historically marginalized uh, and poorer communities are suffering. In the US, there's a totally different approach to treating climate change than there is one internationally. And the US is accompanied, you know, by the EU and increasingly sort of joined by China and India in, in, in pushing this to one side because 
they are the largest emitters and they realize that the you know they are being held accountable for the immense damage that they're now doing you've been um at this for a long time i think you were at the first cop is that i'm right in saying that aren't i yeah. yes and it's hard to know because everybody's exhausted and so on but where do you see it going from here? What can we do in the coming years that hasn't been done in the previous years? Is it about the pressure from civil society? What's your thinking about this? Well, I think absolutely the pressure from civil society. I think the new High Ambition Coalition is civil society, Indigenous people, women, the youth movement, uh, farmers uniting with vulnerable countries who are on the front lines. These are the frontline groups and these are the majority of the world and they're not prioritised in the geopolitics of the climate space as dominated by the G20 and the G2. And that's what you saw, actually. The UN is a place where the people of the world and every country of the world should be represented equally and that's not the case. So I think that uh, the good thing about it, the good, I, I, I guess, I'm thinking is you know, at least you saw the gloves are off. You, you saw how dominated this system, which is meant to be transparent and open and to have uh, all countries equally represented, how skewed it is. And I'm hoping that, you know, people saw what happened last night and they could literally see the Indian delegation running up to the stage, which is, you know, frankly, a diplomatically very, very, you know, dodgy. Uh, and, and, and kind of opening up the deal at the last minute, um, which was brokered by and supported by the US and China. Um, so these larger countries are a lawn to themselves right now. It's not good enough for them to say, you know, historically we are low emitters. They actually dumped on the rest of the world um, and they dumped on their smaller countries, which couldn't speak up other than to say we reluctantly accept this weaker deal. And I think the thing all of us, or at least I find that I'm wrestling with in this, is the sort of different truths that are floating around. You came up to me in 2013 or 2014 outside the school gates and said, Ed, we've got to do this thing called net zero. And I said to you, Vahana, what's net zero? Um, we now have 90% of GDP, I think, covered by net zero. But there's suspicion about how real it is. I mean, how do you weigh progress versus it not being nearly enough. I mean, I'm partly, I'm not just sort of trying to sugarcoat it because I think it's important we tell the truth, but but how do you think about this? There is real progress. We've brought the temperatures down from six degrees to three degrees to now 2.4 degrees. We could be well below two degrees very soon if in fact we deliver on what was agreed in Glasgow. We come back year on year and if we maintain this, we need to flush out the greenwashing from countries uh, and companies alike. And that is happening. I think, you're, you know, the, the fact that companies have signed up to target is the beauty of that net zero goal. You know, countries and companies have been forced to put an end date uh, and to now are under pressure to deliver real plans, real action, real policies, and not just to use um, what we call offsetting, which is also what was agreed at Glasgow. So, so I think that I am immensely encouraged, you know, the long arc of justice is 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 taking place. Um, sometimes I'm dispirited by how much effort it takes. I'm still gutted that, you know, as a lawyer and someone who believes in multilateralism, that the, the richer countries reneged so spectacularly on their financial commitments. They really reneged on the 100 billion, which, you know, you were there, Ed, uh, when that, well, that was agreed in 2009. Yeah. And to... To have that kind, it's almost like uh, they're testing the level of our 
of cruelty that can be inflicted. They're testing our resolve to continue. And we will continue. We are continuing. You know, my spirits are raised by all the immense young people. The energy outside the conference room was what kept those of us who were inside the conference room going. Uh, you know, it's a hard time to be a CEO. And, you know, if you're a rich country still wondering about where your riches came from, they came from a a distorted and quite cruel past which we're having to grapple with and we still need to construct a system which is much kinder and more truthful basically and you saw that actually the earth is abundant and actually we can all support each other and there's enough to go around there's enough energy to go around in the world uh, well listen Fana, i'm sure you are going to keep going with your energy whether it's in relation to cop or in relation to the broader climate movement thanks so much for joining oh, us thanks very much Rather than me wanging on as, a, as, as somebody who wasn't there about what I think, I'm really interested to hear from you, having had those conversations and, and having spent these weeks at COP26, for you to kind of give us your debrief on it. So I saw today that Boris Johnson had, had given it a six and a half out of ten. That, that feels like a four then, if he's saying that. It feels like he really thinks it's a four out of ten. Would you give it a mark out of ten? What are your thoughts? It's sort of, as I said, in the conversation with Pete, which is, you know, the long view, things are significantly advanced compared to where they were a decade ago. The short view, I'd say it's modest progress. But the reality is it's not nearly enough. I thought in a way the most revealing comment, perhaps, of the whole thing was Alok Sharma, who, as I've said publicly elsewhere, has come out of this rather well, I think, saying... You know, one point five is still alive, but it has a weak pulse. Right. I think that's sort of what I feel, and I, and I suppose I feel a bit. If I if I'm honest, I feel a sense of disappointment and frustration because, you know, I was having conversations with Pete two years ago where I was saying, look, the central challenge of this COP is going to be these blasted gigatons and the gap. And if I was having that conversation two years ago, and I had it with a senior cabinet minister. You know, two years ago, I was saying, look, this is the challenge. And I sort of slightly feel like the government tried to find lots of other ways out of that challenge. Let's do some side deals on coal, car, cash and trees, which I understand the reasons for. Let's have long term targets. That's important. But those are complementary to the 2030 thing. And so sort of for various strategic reasons, I don't think they sort of got their kind of ducks in a row to really drive the progress in 2030. Now, it's incredibly hard, and there's big geopolitics here, and you can't put it all at Johnson's door. But the question is, as the host, did he help or hinder it? And I don't think he helped. That's sort of what's interesting to me, I guess, is how much sway does a host country have on the ultimate outcome, the ultimate agreement? Is it is it more about making sure which things are at the centre of the conversation? I mean, it's not, it's not the whole shooting match. And it's not marginal either. Right. You know, so the French presidency did a really, really good planning job. And so I'm sort of positive about Alloc, but he was only appointed full-time president in January. But I think they woke up far too slowly to the central scorecard challenge. And it, look, I'm not saying it would have been easy. It wouldn't have been easy. But you see, my, my example on this is if they had delivered on the financial issue for developing countries much earlier and had made that their absolute focus, they would never have cut the overseas aid budget. They'd have gone out there to deliver the 
100 billion of finance maybe they would have delivered it earlier maybe if johnson had built alliances rather than doing the opposite he could have done it maybe that would have unlocked this high ambition coalition early to then put pressure on countries like china now all of these things are counterfactuals and it's hard to live in the counterfactual or to to, to really know what the you can't live in the counterfactual to know what the counterfactual meant what would have happened but but that, so that's my sort of frustration is that I think it could have done, I think they could have done better and we'll never know. And look, the other thing, frustration is it's, you know, I mean, you know, one, I think Alloc is right. I mean, 1.5 is alive, but I mean, I mean, it's really, really hard. You see, the other thing that's really interesting about this is, okay, so emissions are rising. Countries are saying lots of nice things, global emissions are rising. Are they going to start falling? Because like, we're going to fall by 50%. You know, well, if emissions keep rising, we've got a big problem. You know, are they going to start falling or are they not going to start falling? Um, but then on the other hand, I don't want to say it's hopeless to people because Chris Stark from the Climate Change Committee says says said to me something which is stuck in my mind. You know, he didn't quite put it this way. But, you know, once you start heading in the right direction, you can imagine it accelerating. So so it's like you've got to just get over the hump. Um, yeah. Uh, and honestly, you just got to keep fighting. I mean, the fundamental thing I feel is you got to keep fighting. Um, this is too important, and that's why I'm not saying. That's why I'm not saying in anything I say it's a failure. Partly because I think it's a failure is is too binary. Um, I don't think it delivered what it needed to deliver, but that's a that's a slightly different category. And we've also got to keep fighting. So it, it seems like one point five is accepted whether whether countries are, are willing to take action to get there what's that thing about more honored in the breach than in the observance is that the phrase there's some there's some oldie worldy phrase you only you heard it here first um i'm slightly worried that for some countries it's more honored in the breach than in the observance i mean that's clearly not the right phrase and I thought hearing people like John Kerry use language like the starting pistol has been fired, it, it feels quite late to be talking about things in terms of building blocks or firing starting pistols. Yeah, more on in the breach than the observance, a rule which is more often broken than observed. Uh, um, yeah, that's that's the thing. But look, we, we can't, you know, I, I think the, 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 the I'm going to close with a sort of positive, which is, you know, I think we know, sorry to go back to the gigatons, but, you know, it's it's appropriate. We know it's much more socialised, this idea of what we need to do this decade. You know what I mean? The halving of emissions. Think about a year ago, if we said the halving of emissions this decade, people would have been like, okay, you know, it would have been unfamiliar. It's, It's in the bloodstream now. And so because it's in the bloodstream, maybe it gives us more of a fighting chance to really push the boulder up the hill, but boy, is it a boulder. And what a hill. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. We're in the outro. We are, and I thought we could just take a minute to tell people about something we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. This is your idea. I mean, most good ideas are your ideas. Yeah, and a lot of bad ideas... uh... Are yours and no, but, involve sandwiches. No, but, uh, I was about to say no bad ideas. I thought you were being self-deprecating, but actually <laughs> you were being sort of 
Ed deprecating. Um, uh, isn't it yeah. nice for me to take the pressure of being self-deprecating away from you? You get to outsource your self-deprecation. I'll deprecate you. Yes. Well, you you describe it, but it's your idea. Okay. So I, I thought off the back of COP, let's let's do something different to to um, give you a bit of breather. And something I've often thought when we're doing this podcast is I'll hear the ideas that people bring on, and I'll think that that's fantastic that that could transform society but how on earth does that happen how on earth do we get to that and then the other thing i've thought is whenever we get people on who are historians of whatever kind authors um people working in academia we're always really fascinated so i thought we could spend a few episodes looking at how radical change in modern times has happened and we're going to start next week with the NHS, which is a big one. And we're going to ask the question, what was the germ of the idea? And of course, we did an episode on the beverage report uh, a, a while ago, and that will be part of it. But how do you get from the, the, the principle of universal healthcare to it actually happening? Uh, how contingent on, on historical circumstances is it? But we want to tell some of those stories. And, and as I say, the first one is next week and it's going to be the NHS. I think it's a really good idea because, you know, we, we can really learn from the past and it also it'll make us feel cheerful. Absolutely. Do you want to thank our guests? I'd like to thank our guests, Elizabeth Watuti, Pete Betts and Fahana Yemi. Emma Corsham produces our podcast and gets it sounding all sparkly and lovely. Thank you to Emma. Uh, we're supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is We're not supported by Joel Pierce anymore. No. Do you remember? F*** him. No, no, no. We don't say that. We just say we're not supported by Joel Pierce. Do you remember he's no. he's got this... He, doesn't he have this role that... Um... Emily Power had for a while. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think sorry. he's... I don't, when you say we're not supported by him, I don't think he's... he's no, no, sorry, he's not, I don't mean it like that. He's not actively working to undermine us in any way. To, that okay, we know but of. don't we need... Don't we need to say... Don't we, don't we need to say... And, you know, all the backup and research is no longer done by Joel Pierce. The backup and research was done by Ed. Yeah. This week. Um, yeah, so no longer done by Joel Pierce. If you, I, I think he deserves a credit to keep us, like, a, a lingering credit, a legacy credit. This makes me wonder how you are at the end of a relationship, Ed, whether you find it difficult to let go. <laughs> yes, but that's another story. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, Ed Seed, composer. We'll music. find that out when Norm Cora and Hardcrotch becomes <laughs> sort of goes global. And then, you know, you know, I, I sort I, of you end up deciding that, you know, the Netflix deal means that, you know, I'm out in the cold. <laughs> I couldn't do that to you. I couldn't do. Thank you. If I had to choose between the two of you, I, I would choose you. Oh, thank you. I'm less scared of you. Um, right. Who haven't we mentioned? James Deacon, maybe, iDents. Yeah. Uh, the artwork, Henry Cole. Yeah. Um, used to be done by Emily Power. Once upon a time, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's uh, that's pretty much everything then, isn't it? We should. I mean, that was the most mangled credits in world history, wasn't it? Yeah, but isn't, isn't that good that we are, we're, we're still setting new bars for ourselves, high or low? Exactly. Four and a bit years in. He's been in the cop house. He's been in his own house and these have been reasons to be cheerful even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.